part of the economy that does not include women are denying themselves an opportunity, one for growth and one for diversification. With Women's Month having just concluded, it's given us an opportunity to reflect on enormous challenges women face and to also celebrate the women among us who have flown the flag for women's rights. However, these issues continue to remain real and relevant beyond the August month. And it's important that we continue to have conversations. And it is for this reason that Investec has created a series of webinars to invite women from various sectors and backgrounds to share their stories and their experiences. My name is Makwena Mabusela, the head of client origination within the specialized finance at Investec Bank. Today, we talked to some of the women in the public and SOE sector who are at the forefront of driving women's issues in these turbulent times that we're facing. It is a great pleasure to host and welcome Lerato Mashinini, the head of the investor relations at ESCOM, Lerato Matabuche, the deputy director general at the DTIC, which is the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition, and Sepiso Mwasudi, the Deputy Director General at the National Treasury. Welcome, ladies. What puts me on this chair today is that I'm no stranger to this sector. I have worked in my previous career at Transnet for six years, followed by my colorful years, seven years at SAA. So I have reported to various departments, whether the National Treasury and the DPE. So believe me, ladies, I'm in awe of the incredible work that you're doing as you're saving our country. But I cannot claim to have a clue of the enormous task you have in running all your portfolios. So for this, I'm gonna ask you to please, each one of you, introduce yourself. I'll start with you, Lerato. So give us a taste of who Lerato Machinini is and the task you have of reporting to various government departments and also the wider investment base. Thank you, Makwena, and thank you to Investec and the team that is putting the series together. Thanks for the invitation to participate in the series with these remarkable women in the public sector. My name is Laratu Mashinini. I am responsible for the management of investor relations at ESCOM. Um, most of the time, I'm too shy to say that, but today I say it with confidence. <laughs> what my job entails is basically being uh, the front line between ESCOM and the financial markets stakeholders that serve ESCOM. Um, it is not a job for the faint-hearted. It is a job that I love. It is a job that I enjoy. Um, and it is a job that's very important for, for ESCOM itself. Um, I dabbled a bit with the banking industry at the beginning of my career. I was at Standard Bank. I moved out to Upsa before I settled at ESCOM. I have been there for a little over 10 years. Uh, not part of the furniture yet because the environment changes every day. <laughs> and yeah, that's, that's uh, what I do and that's who I am at ESCOM. Thank you, Lerato. I can imagine um, what you have to go through. But like you're saying, it's not for the faint-hearted and someone has to do it. And we thank you for being there, continuing to serve the country. Now, I'll come to Lerato Matabohe. 
So please also tell us a bit about yourself. And for those who are wondering, what does the DDG and DTIC do? Please give us an insight. Thank you very much, uh, Marguena. Um, I'm the Deputy Director General responsible for export development, export promotion, as well as outward investment facilitation in the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition. Um, I'm one of a few other um, DDGs. Uh, each of us have the, our own um, portfolios. So mine really is to nurture um, new exporters that are going to join. Uh, we've got about 2,000 exporters already in the South African economy. Um, and the exporter development program that I oversee is meant to generate new entrants in the export space. And this is where we take pride in deliberately trying to empower women-owned businesses, youth-owned businesses, of course, Black-owned businesses, to enter into the exporting space. Um, then responsible for export promotion, where we're positioning South African goods and services to various markets abroad, uh, be it the African continent, the BRICS member states, Europe, Asia, Americas, and the like. And we've got a number of, of, of programs um, that are meant to position our goods and services abroad, as well as incentives that we offer um, in that regard. Insofar as outward investments, uh, I also facilitate the, myself and the team, of course, support private sector entities that want to invest outside of South Africa, particularly into the African economy, into the African market, uh, the rest of Africa rather, and the BRICS member states. So again, we we do a lot of hand-holding, dealing with bottlenecks, regulatory and otherwise, using the diplomatic muscle that we have to uh, negotiate for our entities that are wanting to invest abroad. Administratively, I also oversee a network of DTI offices all over the world. I wouldn't necessarily say I've got a typical day as a DTI DDG. Uh, I think Sebiso can attest, because one morning you come in and you land on a parliamentary question that you have to respond to. So you have to derail everything that you had planned to focus on that. And then you have to prepare for accounting to parliament and presentations. You then, you know, uh, have to be signing stacks and stacks of documents and, 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 and submissions that you have to consider. For, for principals, for ministers and, and, and directors general and the like. Um, because as you know, in a bureaucracy, there's a lot of accountability and oversight. So as DDGs, we also spend quite a bit of time um, going through strategic uh, documents and strategic information and making sure that financial prudence is exercised in any uh, endeavor that we undertake. So, um, and I think that's the exciting part about it. We don't necessarily have a typical day. Um, it's a hodgepodge of keeping this economy afloat. Thank you, Director. And hence, I'm saying I might all because I cannot even begin to imagine how you how you get through this. So, Piso, you have the money. We look at you. We come with open hands. We ask him for money every day. So, please tell us about yourself and just let us know what you do. Um, in your in your job. Thank you very much, Makwena, for inviting me, and also thank um, the two Lerato, Lerato Matabuche and uh, Lerato Mashili for having agreed to be part of this panel. I think fantastic um, women that we have and that we can be proud of. Just by way of introduction, I think I'm a professional with a decade uh, of co-experience, predominantly in the um, National Treasury. I have also 
had a stint in the private sector, but I just felt at the time that something was missing and I was trying to see the bigger picture. And I felt that uh, my initial job was just giving me snapshot of uh, what I could potentially see. And I've, I remember applying to the National Treasury. I can tell you, I did not even know very much what they were doing, but I met these two ladies in varsity and they used to tell me, you know, you should come to the National Treasury. And they looked good. I mean, they, um, they, they were well presentable and it looked like a place that one can be. And I just one day applied and found myself there. And uh, I have grown over the years in, in the Treasury. I mean, I came in at a very low um, level as a deputy director, I remember, for foreign debt. Um, and I've grown to you know, be somebody who provides leadership at strategic and operational level um, across the, the, the national treasury, whether it be economics. Um, I've spent a lot of time, obviously, in finance, in particular, looking at debt issuance and all the issues around the management thereof, um, cash management, risk management, and uh, one that, um, you know, is always daunting, which is uh, policy formulation. But you can't be in an, in an environment um, of the national treasury and not be open to formulating policy. And I've, I've really grown and the, the growth has been partly because I've put in work. Um, I've also then had support, which is something that we don't talk about um, from colleagues and also from uh, mentors. Um, currently in the role that I am um, doing, I am responsible for sourcing funding to meet government uh, borrowing requirement, uh, where we collect revenue and, um, and revenue is not sufficient to cover the expenditure that uh, you know might be requesting from ourselves, then we need to go out um, and source that fund from the financial markets, both locally, internationally. Um, and another daunting work is exercising oversight over state-owned companies uh, to enable them to achieve government policy objectives um, in a way that is financial and, and, and fiscally sustainable. Um, so that is uh, what I am responsible for. As Lerato said, it is never a dull moment. My day is extremely dynamic. Um, sometimes, you know, you don't know whether you are coming or going, uh, but you have to, you know, remain committed to, to the work and, and do that as best as, as you can. Thank you, Tsepiso. Um, that is mouthful. And respect to you, ladies, because what you do on a daily basis, it is, it is, it, it, it is amazing. And we need women like you um, who can fly the flag that we look upon. Um, and it shows for every woman out there, for every young girl out there, that it is possible. So I understand that it's very difficult, but we're proud of you. And we say, please continue doing the good job. We talk of inclusive growth path that South Africa needs to embark on. And these sectors have a crucial role in keeping women at the heart of this process, especially in the light of this disruption that is caused by the COVID-19. So I'm going to address this question to all of you, starting with you, Tepiso. With a steadily increase, increasing reach of women in the public sector, what should we be focusing on now or in the next two to three years to ensure that this effect of inclusive growth is felt for all women across the country. 
Thank you very much, Makwenos, uh, for, for the question. I think a very pertinent question and a question that should not only involve us as women in conversations like this. I think it's a question that we should have as a collective um, with our male counterparts to ensure that in every sphere and in every sector where we are involved, we are very deliberate about inclusivity of women. We are very deliberate about inclusivity of those who are disabled in, in these, um, to ensure that they are part of the, uh, the inclusive growth. Because at the heart of it is diversity. And diversity means that, you know, whether male or female perspective, even from an age perspective, by the way, um, that you are able to have multiple perspective in trying to address the issues that have been raised and try to look at a lens because every one of us have a lens through which we are looking at how things should be addressed. And I think, uh, yes, we do focus on women. I think we should. We should also focus on um, issues of age where we are including um, across the spectrum of age for a different perspective and for different issues of which they impact uh, how we look at, at, at these issues. Um, women play a very important role in, in society. Already you have women who are the breadwinners. You have women who have been left to lead their own household. So part of the economy that does not include women are denying themselves an opportunity, one for growth and one for diversification. So I think as we push through with uh, various um, aspects of, 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 of you know, growth-enhancing initiatives. And Lerato Matabuha might even come in in terms of what they are doing um, in, as an as a, as a implementing economic department in relation to some of the programs that they are doing to make sure that women are at the forefront and women are not included as an afterthought, but there is a deliberate attempt and there is no apologizing because somehow at times we come across as if we are doing women a favor and we are coming across very apologetic in the things that needs to be done. Thank you, Tepiso. And I'll come to you, Lerato Mataboche. As, as Tepiso has said, um, you are probably well-versed to talk about the programs, and I think you mentioned it in the, in the introduction, the, the programs that the DTIC are embarking on to make sure that you know the women are, in, are, are included. Thank, thank you, Makwena. Um, we've got quite a number of of um, programs and incentives um, that are targeted at women. Um, but I'd like to raise um, one key thing um, that we are trying to address now because we've noticed that in society broadly, not just public sector, not just our department, um, we tend to treat the matter of empowerment of women as a tick box exercise. Um, so we, we, we have begun to ask ourselves, have we really mainstreamed the, 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 the issue of looking at the impact of what we do through a gender lens? Um, and, and this COVID has been very useful because it's given us time to pause and reflect and say, what exactly is the impact of what we do on women directly? Not just 
for me to give you the statistics that we've supported 50% women-owned businesses. No. What impact has that had insofar as the income disparities, insofar as development is concerned? So to that end, what we've done now um, is we've entered into a partnership with uh, an entity called uh, Womenomics Africa. This is an outfit of, 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 of women that are really keen on making sure that women's voices are heard in the economic sphere from a policymaking standpoint to, a, to an implementation standpoint. So we've entered into an MOU with them. So what we want to do as one of the first key projects um, to make sure that we really assess each and every program and policy that we do as far as possible with a gender lens and the impact on, on gender dynamics um, is to work out a matrix that's going to assess the impact of the continental African continental free trade area on women. Not just women in South Africa, but women on the African continent as a whole. So we're working on, on, on a matrix of sorts that will be utilized to assess um, to assess that. And I think this can revolutionize um, the development space and what we mean about the, the, the empowerment of women, because the reality is the feminization of poverty is real. Uh, even among ourselves as we speak, if we had to open the books in our organizations and look at the income disparity between men and women, um, that alone can tell you the kind of issues that we have to deal with. So it starts with issues like that, the income disparities that, that exist uh, at all levels of, of professions and societies, same with public sector. Um, and how do we then begin to truly meaningfully mainstream um, gender issues in our organizations, not just have a gender desk, that's going to tell you that we've reached the 52% or 50% uh, target for, for females in, in management, for example. Going a step further and saying every decision taken by the board, taken by the, the ex-co of that organization or department, um, what is the impact of that decision on women? Thank you, Lerato. And further to your point, the extreme econo economic hardship our communities face also highlight the negative impact of challenges like load shedding that everyday lives, everyday um, lives of ordinary citizens are impacted. I'm gonna come to you, Lerato Machinini, because this is, direct, this is directed at you. And um, we cannot go without talking about this issue. Can you talk us through this, in particular reference to the burden that placed on women during this um, time of COVID. Uh, Marquena, you're quite right. Uh, load shedding is is unfortunately a burden that uh, South Africa has to live with. Um, a burden that is imposed on on South Africans. Um, and I think uh, it's it's you know without making excuses, it's it's the result of. Uh, legacy issues that started um, a bit of a while ago and have unfortunately taken so long um, to to resolve uh, without going into the technical reasons for the load shedding um, it is it is basically a legacy issue of infrastructure that was not well taken care of we are we are very aware um, and and um, sadly aware that the impact of load shedding on the country, on the economy. Um, it is something that we, we do not overlook. Um, it is not something that I think uh, most of us literally stay awake at night uh, when we think of the impact that we have. And 
if you were to, to take away um, the high level economic development that you would talk about every day and go to the everyday life of the women in the townships, the women in the rural areas, or even um, women who are running their own businesses uh, for that matter, if you look at the impact that low shedding has on them, it, you, you, you just will literally not sleep at night. So I think, um, yes, it is taking long to resolve, uh, but I have seen progress. Um, I, I'm, I'm a pure Eskomite through and through. I know where we come from. I know where we have been. And I mean, it's, it's easy for me to sit here and say, ah, oh, look, loitering is here to stay and really just get a generator and plan around what is happening. But in reality, that's not the reality of everyday women um, who are trying to put businesses together. If you think about a woman who has a salon, um, uh, a beauty studio where they need running water, they need electricity, and you're going to take away the electricity for four hours of the day, which is half the working day that they could be generating revenue and generating an income. So I think the focus right now um, of, of our board, of our management, of the leadership is to say, look, what, what do we have to do to stabilize uh, this system? Because it is clearly the foundation of a lot of issues uh, that, that happen in South Africa and that affects uh, everybody else. And I think I have seen um, and I've experienced uh, a lot of uh, trying to rectify those mistakes and uh, trying to, to develop the system so that it becomes a bit more reliable, um, it becomes a bit more predictable so that we can, with confidence, say that, look, we are guaranteeing um, the, the supply system, we are guaranteeing that we will not uh, impede uh, any growth in the country at any level. Uh, at all. Thank you, Lerato. I think I think the, the impact is enormous, and you rightly said women are struggling, and the whole country is struggling. And and I think this is where maybe we we need to make sure that the private and the public um, sectors come together, we collaborate in order to make sure that we come up with solutions, uh, because this is a problem that we've had for a long time, and it's now magnified by the by, by, by the effect of COVID. So it's really, and, 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 and these are the issues that we need to talk about. And it leads me to another challenge. And Sepiso, I'm directing this question to you. We're seeing the corruption that come, that coming every day, uh, whether through COVID um, and also maybe aggravated by the COVID. So please just give us an insight in terms of what is the department really doing um, to make sure that this impact is really, the corruption is really like um, taken away and that is being dealt with. Uh, Thanks, Makwena, for, for the question. Certainly, I think um, corruption is very corrosive. Um, it's, it's impact across governments, societies, countries. Um, you've seen all over the world the impact. And for us, even so, and I think part of it is because it is not being dealt with, i.e. there are no consequences for um, corruption. You know, you see a, an official or a private sector uh, person who has been involved in corruption. All you see is a splurge on the newspaper. Obviously, it does dent their credibility. But beyond that, you do not have a very... Um, exemplary way of dealing with corruption because that way then people are going to have it and they would know that corruption is something that is not tolerated. And you, the tone is not set even from the top 
in terms of how then corruption would be dealt with. And it's not just a public sector um, issue. It is across uh, the public sector. It is across the private sector. It needs to be dealt with decisively. Um, it is not only the South African problem. It is a global problem. But in other countries, you know, in South Africa, when you have um, 100,000 that needs to be put into a project, uh, you get uh, somebody taking 90 and thinking that they can build a school with the 10,000 that is left, uh, which means, one, you end up not having whatever project that was supposed to be done. Two, um, it's, it's either incomplete or even not, and the person has pocketed 90,000 rand and nobody uh, is, is, is being livid about it. And I think you, 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 you don't have one person also being corrupt. I think that's one principle also that we need to look at, that there is um, the corruptor and the corruptee in that equation that needs to be dealt with. And processes are there, all processes, uh, prescripts, law, which is where the National Treasury comes in. You'd issue instruction notes of what needs to happen, how procurement needs to be done. But the truth of the matter is that there are people there are people inside, there are people outside. And I always maintain anything that is man-made, another man can break. And that's what we've seen. So I would say that we do have the very clear rules and regulations that needs to be, and maybe in terms, especially around procurement, maybe that there has to be a lot of modernization in that area that is required and limit a lot of human interactions um, and digitize a lot of things. And I mean, this private sector would have come um, and there are a lot of ideas of how you can do that to make sure that you limit the human interaction in the process. So it is, it, it is absolutely said, I mean, the case in point um, is the one around uh, the, you know, PPEs in relation to COVID where you need protective equipment, um, government has gone, even, you know, made a provision so that that can be procured easily without going through a lot of red tape. But then you find companies that never were there that are mushrooming everywhere and everyone is just trying to score as opposed to trying to serve and make sure that everyone has the right protective equipment that is needed. So... Yeah, a, a real issue that we can talk about the whole day, uh, but certainly something that um, I would say we need to deal with um, for ourselves and for our generation's sake. Thank you, Sakiso. Um, I would have loved to hear both uh, Lerato, um, both Leratos in terms of of this topic because it's I mean we're not seeing uh, orange overalls we're seeing money that's being used that's supposed to be going to the poor being used recklessly and for corruption um, so we'll leave that but I think this is a topic that is at the heart of all of us and it's impacting us and specifically the women um, in this country um, let's move to the next point and this question I can I can relate I can I can relate and I can, um, I'll direct it to, to, to any of you really. What are the roadblocks or barriers to entry for women in the public sector? And what are those? And what can we do as a country to overcome them? Thank you, Marquena. Um If we're going to confine the conversation to the public sector, I would argue that we don't have an entry problem for women. 
we've got a retention problem. Um, our recruitment is we've got we've got the most fantastic and the most transformative recruitment processes. I'll speak for my own department. I mean, we have exceeded the fifty percent gender um, requirement for women in senior management positions. We're actually at 52, so we're doing great. We're doing a great job. The problem I have found is that um, in the public service broadly, we don't have strategies to retain the talent, the female talent that we have. The fact that we are here and we're speaking, um, you know, a lot of it is about digging very deep to understand uh, the reason why you do what you do and the serve. But honestly speaking, a lot of the systems around us are not necessarily encouraging for us to stay. Uh, and that's a fact. And that's a different conversation that, that can be had when there's more time. Um, but to be a female leader, to be a woman leader uh, in the public sector, it, it, it takes a lot of, out of you. It takes a lot of introspection. It takes a lot of building a village around yourself. Uh, outside of the workplace that can enable you to continue to do what you need to do. Uh, because once you're in the system that has enabled you or given you access, that very system does not have necessarily tailor-made supportive mechanisms that that take into account uh, your, your, your womanhood, right? And that's very important uh, because we are competing in a space where the expectations on us are a bit higher, are much higher uh, in the professional sphere, also in the home front. A lot of us started this uh, in our productive years. So a lot of us are mothers, um, mothers to young children, balancing all of that. All of us have internationally oriented portfolios, most of us rather, at least in this conversation. That entails your time away from your family, right? So, so. We need environments that, that, that recognize the fact that uh, we are all on a very tight rope uh, balancing all these responsibilities and we never get them right at the same time. We can never have it all. I think there's a fallacy at this point. Uh, you do the best you can. So a lot of then women tend to leave the public service because of not being adequately supported to maintain the particular balance. I'll give you an example with the foreign economic, um, we call it foreign economic offices of the DTI, the trade investment offices that we have abroad. Majority of our foreign economic representatives are male. And we, we spend time to assess why are we not having a sizable number of, of, of professionals, female professionals in, in, in the DTIC applying for going to serve abroad. And majority of them, it will be precisely because their partners, male partners, are unwilling to uproot themselves to another country. Whereas most of our male officials uproot themselves and the women automatically follow somehow. There's, there's some dynamic that, that renders uh, the women, uh, whether or not they're given options, it's a different conversation. But, but you see, it, it's the little things like that. There's a nuance to, to the type of choices that a woman can make as a professional. And, and I think we need to get to a, to a space and a world where our respective workplaces appreciate that and begin to give us the necessary support as women. Um, and, 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 and that, that's part and parcel for me of the retention strategy of, of us retaining 
women in different spheres of the economy and retaining uh, women, particularly in the public service. Um, do we have barriers to entry? I would argue very minimal, but we've got barriers to operation. I, I mean, I, I certainly agree with, uh, with Sirach. I think um, you know, if you look at the public sector, um, the Department of Public Service and Administration did some, some study. You've got a lot of women in the public sector. You've got them, a lot of them also in sort of middle management. And when I look at barriers, you know, trying to think, I think there are external barriers and there are internal barriers. And internal barriers, I am talking about, you know, as women always wanting to be 100% perfect, you know, you want the next role, you look at the requirements and you're thinking, you know, there are 10 requirements, I meet seven or I meet six. So therefore, I'm not going to go and take advantage of that opportunity. You find a guy with three out of 10 goes in there and puts their CV and they end up being your manager, yet you are better qualified to be able to do that. So those are some of the internal barriers that we put for ourselves that we need to spend time with. The external ones you can engage. And as, as, as uh, Lerato was saying, not many in, in the public sector, but the point remains that, you know, the, the hiring managers, if they are male, where would they be predispositioned in terms of hiring? Would they be looking at females the same way or they would be looking at uh, males and thinking, wow, this one is coming out confidently, even though they might not necessarily be the right person for the job, uh, they end up being hired for, for the particular position. So I think those softer things and being deliberate about one, building a pool, because if you don't have a pool of, of females as well, it means that when you are looking to hire for a, you know, a senior position, you don't have enough to work with. You need to have to have enough to work and have enough to work with. But also what I find is, and I mean, I saw this for myself when I moved into the trade, the space around issuance and financial market, very male dominated. And you ask yourself, where is your sponsor and mentor in that space? Because you do need those. Males are mentored and sponsored all the time. You know, whether they are outside having a cigarette, you know, whether they are doing other things where women are not part of, um, they are getting that support in terms of, of, of mentorship and, and sponsorship. You know, Lerato Machinini can also come in and, and um, give her own perspective in, in relation to that as well. Yeah, I think um, um, I agree with both Tepizzo and, and Lerato Matabuche in the sense that there, there are no uh, barriers to entry in the public sector that, that I see that I've experienced. Um, what what I do feel that is a bit of a barrier is the the public sector. The market has opened wide enough for women to come in and out, uh, but then there's a high level of concentration in the middle management positions. When once you you go into these certain companies and and you you get to middle management and you feel that okay, this is kind of where we all are. This is where we are stuck. And I think for me, it is incumbent on the women in senior positions and board at Exco to, to, to look down and say, look, let me take a calculated risk, a calculated chance on Tepiso. I see that Tepiso has potential. And actually, someone bet on me for me to get here. So let me bet on someone. But um, I sometimes... Uh, 
wonder if I mean the women at that, that that we look up to in these in these senior positions, the women of substance as we call them, do they get up there and feel that you know I have to fight so much to stay here and to prove that I deserve to be here, that they don't have time or energy or even the cognizance to say, look, I still have to go back down and bring up um, uh, these women. And I, I think if, if you sit and put yourself in that position, it's not always about women not wanting to lift up women. It is because now you're in the boardroom and you're battling these men so much, like Tabisa says, someone's going to say go to you and you're thinking, this is the kind of battles that I have to fight. How am I going to now start going down to, to, to the middle management level and start grooming and start being deliberately um, uh, uh, taking look at the opportunities to, to, to upgrade these women. And I, I've seen, I mean, our peers, uh, we, we, are very, uh, we are very cognizant of the fact that we have to empower ourselves. If you don't know something, don't be shy. Raise up your hand and say, look, I don't understand what that means. And once you know, raise your hand and say, I will fold my sleeves up. I'm going to get into it, uh, dig down into it and do the work. And I think that's also, you know, I, I, I believe strongly that you have to take the responsibility upon yourself to say, I am going to empower myself. I am going to speak up and without being aggressive and climbing on the table, but you have to speak up and be assertive enough to say, look, I think this is what should be done. This is what I can do. Um, and that's, that's how we grow. We are building the foundation for the generations that are coming. Thank you, ladies. I think you've really, you, you really touched on all the challenges that, 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 that we have, whether the public sector or the private sector. So this challenge, this challenges remain. And I think, uh, just one question briefly, if we can just like continue on the COVID. So quickly, if you can just bring your individual experiences, what you've gone through, the challenges or benefits through this COVID. I'll quickly just ask you to just give us an insight. Sure. I'm almost embarrassed to, to say, right, uh, that the circumstance around COVID, uh, for me, at least, has been somewhat of a blessing. So it's something that you don't say out loud because a lot of people are really, really negatively impacted by this. So I don't underestimate that. But the benefit of finally being able to spend time with my children, uh, which in the I've been with the DTIC for almost now 20 years, I think. Um, and, and I've always had the international oriented portfolio. So, so that level of travel uh, has been quite intense. These lockdowns or this lockdown has been very, very, very useful to me uh, and to my family and to my children for us to begin to reconnect with each other. Um, it's also interestingly, and I noticed this with my team and I was saying it um, to some of them the other day that we are the most productive that we've ever been. Um, because nobody, there's no expectation for anybody to rush to some boardroom, figure out what color tie they're going to wear, figure out what color stilettos they're going to wear for the day. So, so, so that there's, there's a relief in working in your comfort zone that opens up your creative space. Um, so I've found that I've, I've gotten the best work out of my team in this period. Um, amazingly so, to the point that I've made a conscious decision that the only time we're going to go back to the office is when it's necessary. Even post-COVID, if WHO declares that COVID is over, our new way of work is, is, is a way that enables us to be in our most comfortable spaces, to be at our best and, and the most creative. And the level of tools that we've begun to discover that have always been there, by the way, 
digital tools uh, to get us to do work. I was amazed at the wealth of tools that have been out there, but we, we were always reluctant to even consider them because you were given a badge of honor for showing up and sitting in a boardroom and sitting across a person, flying to a country to have a one hour meeting uh, on, on some strategic matter, of course. But then you, COVID has really said to us, we've actually been wasting a lot of time and money. Being stuck in traffic, being stuck on highways, worried about what you were wearing, worried about, you know, um, so so just to be relieved from that um, has been <laughs> to be to be able to wake up, spend an hour or two with your children. Like I said, we don't say it out loud enough because there's a lot of people that really have been negatively impacted by COVID. I don't underestimate that. But also, this has been such a blessing to human relations, um, particularly family ones. Um, so, so it's, it's and, and, and also productivity levels, I think, have been positively impacted by this. Unfortunately, ladies, um, we have run out of time and there's so much that I mean, I would have loved us to discuss uh, in terms of your personal stories, but this has been great. There are other issues that we needed to talk about, which is the gender-based violence. But as we women, we'll continue to fight, we'll continue to talk about these issues, and we'll continue to make sure that we help other women to rise. I know it's difficult uh, to be up there when you are up there and you're fighting all the fights, but we mustn't forget the women that are, da- that are down there, that they need us, that they need us you know, to help them to rise. But it's been a great pleasure to host you here. And uh, I mean, in this COVID, let's, 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 let's enjoy what, what it's giving us. It is a challenge that we have to deal with. And we can only deal with all those challenges on a daily basis as we go. But ladies, thank you very much. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider.